Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Mensel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, we'll ramble about acting our age. We'll tell you about a guy who argued in court to make him 20 years younger. We'll ask you if you could fly to space, would you? We'll define dating terms in the Tinder era. We'll share how simple everyday movement can improve your health. We'll reveal that many Americans of the love generation are now high on medical marijuana. And in the Old Dogs interview, we'll chat with Tom Cliff, a Detroiter who turned a pink slip as a trust officer into a new career as a psychotherapist. We would all love to be 20 years younger, right? Oh, yeah. We're not talking about lying about your age. We mean erasing 20 years from your legal age. Now, this sounds like the setup for a joke, but a Dutch citizen named Emil Rattleband tried to legally be declared 20 years younger than he is. This pod nugget comes to us from the Houston Chronicle dated December 4th, 2018. Mr. Rattelbaum told a court in his home country that he felt and acted 20 years younger than his actual age. Therefore, he requested that all the necessary documents be altered to change his age from 69 to 49. He argued that it shouldn't be any different than changing one's name or gender. The court wisely denied his request. They said the law assigns rights and obligations based on age, such as voting or compulsory school attendance. If people could arbitrarily choose their age, these requirements would be meaningless. Now, of course, the natural question is, why stop at 49? Why not 21? I wouldn't mind redoing my 20s with better judgment. (laughs) Or what the heck, why not six? Sure. We'd have to start all over in the first grade, but we should be able to get a jump on higher education. So, Jim... What's on your mind today? Well, I got to tell you, Paul, I was going to ask you, without looking in the mirror, can you tell me what age do you think you feel? Uh, Today, about 95, (laughs) you must know. (laughs) You know, for me, how I feel is really day-to-day. You know, some days I'm I'm full of energy. Other days I'm feeling a little tired. So, I don't know. I can't say I, I automatically feel a certain age. How about you? Well, I I have to say that overall, yeah, although I, I feel that way too, I feel younger than I am. Liar, and liar, I pants on fire. Just feel <laughs> oh, okay. younger. And I think most people, if you ask them, what age do you feel? They're going to say, well, I feel like I'm... 45, or I feel like I'm 52, or whatever. They rarely say that they feel their exact age. And I got to thinking about this that we may feel younger than we look, and that that has a lot of repercussions in the workplace. Yeah, that's true. We, we've come across a lot of articles that deal mm-hmm. with pressure that people our age have if they're returning to work right. to look younger than they actually are, mm-hmm. which means dyeing your hair, maybe uh, projecting more energy than you normally would, coming up with youthful terms like 23 skidoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> oops, gave away my age, didn't I? 
Uh, well, even far out. I mean, you know, you can try to, to imitate the language of younger people and fail miserably. That's true, because those those uh, phrases tend to change meaning from uh, yeah. from time to time. I'd like to hear from our listeners about that. Do you feel uh, a necessity to look younger than you actually yeah, are? Right. And it's interesting that that applies to people almost from the time they cross, let's say, the age of 40, that there is this ageism that happens in the workplace. And as it, it doesn't matter whether you are looking for an advance in a career that's in mid term, but it could also apply to people who are returning to the workforce in their 60s or even 70s, that they are forced to consider somehow looking younger than they are. Yeah. And, and not just for cosmetic reasons, but there's some kind of societal pressure, uh, some pressure in the business world that uh, makes you want to look different than you really do look normally. Yeah. Of course, that has some really weird consequences, like uh, if you try to – if you're in your 70s and you try to look 35, <laughs> yeah, that's can true. really look pathetic. Yeah, you can spot those guys on the dance floor every time, can't you? <laughs> A few podcasts ago, we were talking about NASA and the space race. Well, we've made a lot of progress since then. In fact, it's more and more likely that the average person will be able to travel to space in sometime in the near future. In fact, several companies now want to make that wish come true. This pod nugget comes to us from the Washington Post dated November 6, 2018. These companies are trying to open up space travel to ordinary people. Okay, maybe they're looking for ordinary people with a lot of cash. Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin want to take tourists on a trip to the edge of space. Now, this trip would just be up and down, but they would experience weightlessness and a breathtaking view of Earth. The price tag, guess, Jim? Uh, okay, go ahead. $250,000. Boy, I'd just ask my friend with the bucks to take a picture, wouldn't you? Yeah, really. Another company, SpaceX, is negotiating with a Japanese millionaire for a trip around the moon. The price wasn't mentioned, or whether meals were included. They better be pretty fine yeah, meals. More than peanuts. Yeah. So if you're an ordinary person and money was no object, would you like to play among the stars? You know, Jim, I think I'll wait until it's a lot safer. How about you? Well, at least a lot cheaper. Hey, Jim, remember the good old days of dating when if you didn't want to see someone again, you just wouldn't return their phone calls? Yeah, vaguely. Well, the dating scene today is more complicated, even for people our age. It's been shaped by online dating sites and social networking. Hmm. Google dating sites for seniors, and you'll be surprised how many options there are for our age group. Nearly half the people over 65 in the U.S. are not married. Of course, not all unmarried seniors are looking for a relationship, but, you know, many are, and they're using senior dating sites. The Washington Post for August 29, 2018, explains the intricacies of making and breaking off a relationship online. Here's some dating terms that may be helpful. Benching. Putting a romantic prospect on the team, but not first string. This may involve making a date, but then rescheduling it multiple times. You're keeping them in reserve on the bench. Breadcrumbing. 
This is similar to benching, but there's more communication. There is a constant stream of complimentary texts, but no follow-up or plans. Ghosting is ending a relationship by cutting off all communication. This can happen at any point in a relationship, which can be puzzling for the one ghosted. A slow fade is a variation on ghosting that involves a gradual reduction in communications as the relationship slowly fades away. And zombieing involves trying to reconnect with someone you ghosted. Reconnecting can be low risk. For example, by liking a Facebook entry. I mean, man, zombieing. <laughs> yeah, really. It's these are kind of scary terms, aren't <laughs> really? they? Really. Well, thanks to social networking, you can now start a relationship, string along a relationship, end a relationship, and restart a relationship without having any face-to-face -face contact. Well, I guess you're not supposed to take dating personally, huh? How about just having a relationship? Hmm. Let's be honest. Nobody likes putting on sweats, going to the gym, and working out, right? Okay, that's honest. Only about a quarter of Americans do a formal exercise routine each week. Now, the new federal physical activity guidelines contains this simple concluding statement. Move more and sit less. In other words, if you can't do a formal workout, get more active. Now, this news comes to us from Time Magazine for December 10th, 2018. Activities you don't normally think of as exercise can still produce significant health benefits. Recent studies found that each additional half hour of light physical activity among seniors reduced the risk of early death by 12 to 17 percent. Not a bad investment return. Here's a few ways to increase your physical activity. Yard work, like raking leaves. Housework, like cleaning the bathroom. Parking farther from your destination and walking the rest of the way. Taking the stairs rather than the elevator. Walking or biking to nearby locations rather than driving. Oh, and I got one for you, Paul. Oh, yeah? Get out of the house several times a day and tell those neighbor kids to get off your lawn. Okay, if you couple that with running after them, that right. would make it aerobic, wouldn't it? Right. Well, you guys get the idea. Get on your feet and not stay in your seat. Boomers are certainly no strangers to marijuana. But as we settled down and got a job, things changed. Especially if it was a job that urine tested for drugs. We switched from pot to potables, turning to the more acceptable high of alcohol. Yeah, I'll drink to that. <laughs> but lately, we're returning to marijuana in droves. Only this time, it is medical cannabis for aches and pains. This item comes to us from the New York Times for December 7, 2018. Medical cannabis is in demand by seniors for ailments ranging from arthritis to back pain to insomnia. Now, now what do you suppose they mean by demand? What Are they protesting? Are they carrying signs? <laughs> I think they're just consuming passively. <laughs> As the number of states legalizing marijuana increases, so will the usage. Or at least people will be more likely to admit to usage if it's legal. Cannabis consumers have a wide variety of options for consumption. This includes smoking, vaping, tinctures, edibles, topical creams, and patches. Uh, does that include brownies in there, too? Well, I imagine so. Have you ever seen one of those those uh, stores, like in Colorado? I mean, there, there are bins and bins of different products. Right, right. 
However, the social support and legislation for legalization is outpacing the research on the long-term effects. Studies have shown that cannabis alleviates the nausea associated with chemotherapy, but its other uses are not as well researched. That doesn't stop users who rely on their own experience of symptom relief from a variety of ailments. That sounds like another throwback to the 60s. If it feels good, do it. Yeah, I've got in a lot of trouble with that one. Tom Cliff was a trust officer at a bank. At the age of 64, his job was eliminated during the recession of 2009. So Tom did what more of us may want to do. He created his dream job. As a young man, you started off as a lawyer. You went to law school, and then you morphed into a trust officer, and then eventually, after many years, decided to become a social worker. Tell us what happened, Tom, when you started off, uh, what were your goals, and uh, what basically happened over the course of time that ended up with you being a social worker today? So, I graduated in 68. You know, I just was a liberal arts major and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I worked hard and I did pretty well and I got good grades on the law boards and and good numbers and um, so I applied to law schools and I got in and I got into Harvard and that was the of course the height of the Vietnam War and the government had just eliminated draft deferments for grad school so you had to show up and enroll and then you could always come back. So I showed up and enrolled and um, just kind of one thing led to another. It was a huge place and I found it completely intimidating. And I wasn't sure really why I was there. I just went there because I was there. Okay. So I got through the first year and worked for a law firm in Detroit for the summer and liked it. And then I went back for a second year feeling all good and was more depressed than ever. And then I uh, worked for a law firm in San Diego in the summer, and I liked that. So I went back to, for a third year, and I was ready to go, and more depressed than ever, but uh, I finished it. And graduated, you know, didn't do terribly, and I got a job. So it was sheer momentum, I think. And I decided to tax law, and especially working with people with money. I liked the idea of a consultative career that had a technical aspect to it. But I wouldn't ever say that I felt, you know, like drawn to be a lawyer, except for what I assumed would be the uh, the way of life, that lifestyle that it would support. Yeah. And, you know, I'm wrong about that. Um, so but then I was still a lawyer, though, and that job didn't work out. But they introduced me to people in, in Michigan and I, we moved to Kalamazoo. I joined the Michigan bar and I worked at that firm till I realized that you were never going to get ahead unless you could bring in your own clients. And I had no idea how to do, do that. So then they introduced me to the trust department at the bank. They worked with a lot. And that's how I got started in, in, in that work. One thing led to another and I needed a job and I got good jobs and I worked until a job got eliminated in uh, the great recession. Then I decided what to do next. So how long were you at the uh, trust firm, Tom? Oh, I was at different trust banks. That career started in 1976 and it lasted until 2009. Tom, when you were let go at the age of 64, uh, yep. was this a time of, of really, you know, kind of looking in the mirror and going, what's going on? Oh, I didn't. I took it personally only to a limited extent, but I figured uh, I could still do this. And um, so I wasn't doing a lot of work looking in the mirror at that point. The focus was on getting a new job. 
the looking in the mirror part came along more slowly. And then uh, it was a great thing to, for me to be able to work with a life coach who is entirely focused on the idea that people should do in life what they're suited for that, and that they find um, rewarding and expressive of their essence. And so working with that life coach, it went down a completely different track from getting a job for the first time. Okay. And so what different track was that? Different track was um, becoming a psychotherapist. Uh, and then the, the practical question was getting into grad school and which track to do, becoming a psychologist. And that takes longer because you have to get a doctorate to work independently or become a licensed professional counselor. That's another track, but you're still with a master's, you're always required to be supervised by somebody else. Or you could become a social worker. And when you get your license, you don't have to be supervised anymore. You could practice, you could have an independent practice. That's what I wanted to do. So, went, so that's why I went to Wayne State for the, the uh, social work program. I got admitted like two weeks before it was supposed to start and we were out west for a wedding. And so I showed up, class started and I was there and I really liked it. It was something, it was completely different experience from being in law school. Everything about it was different. And I enjoyed it. And I loved being in school and I did well, worked hard. But I really, this time, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a psychotherapist in individual private practice. And so all my effort was focused on here's what I want to do rather than, you know, I got in, so I'm just going to you know, go with a degree. It was completely different from my professional experience up to then. Tom, what does this phrase mean to you? Whose life are you living? That is a phrase that I think I learned from the life coach, uh, and I've seen it in other contexts. The notion is that your father says, well, you should be a lawyer. Or somebody says, well, you should be you know, a priest. And I was in the seminary for a while. And it's somebody else establishes an expectation, and you buy that expectation. As contrasted to looking and coming to an awareness of your own essence your own gifts, your own uh, preferences, and following those rather than following somebody else's prescribed track. Well, so what you then bring to the practice of psychotherapy, do you find that you can apply that to the people that you see that helped you and now you can use it to help others? I would say that's the case. Uh, there are, I, I'm not a coach. I'm not a career coach in the same sense that, or a life coach that the, the woman I worked with. That's literally a different discipline, different licensing. Um, so my work is maybe more, even more basic than that. Uh, people coming to understand themselves. And as they come to understand themselves, they begin to get more of an idea of how did they come to find themselves in their present unhappy circumstance. They begin to see, well, this is why I'm you know, married to this person and it's not happy and I've never been happy. And, you know, this is how I got myself into this. And I have within me, uh, you know, the resources to consider what do I really want to do at this point? My job is not to tell them what to do or what to think. My job is, is to listen and ask questions. What would your advice be, Tom, to uh, someone who has retired uh, and you want to encourage them to stay involved with life. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people confront that change and, and it can be very uh, difficult for a lot of people. I think that's um, that gets into the, the area of advice rather than listening. 
and helping people as the life coach helped me, helping people to come to understand what it was that they liked about what they've been doing for the last 35 years. And how does that preference, that, that skill, that gift, how does that, how might that generalize into how they spend their time in retirement? Maybe they want to go to Florida and play golf. Um, then you know, that's a start. But is that, how long is that going to work for you if you don't, if you're not used to playing golf five days a week? Um, people might come along five years later or three years later and say, uh, I'm really tired of this <laughs> and I don't know what I'm going to do next. And I feel like I'm stuck. And sometimes in the past that used to you know, have life shortening consequences for people. But the idea is that it doesn't have to be life shortening. People have within them the resources to choose things to do that will be satisfying and rewarding and that are consonant with their personal values. Tom, in your own therapeutic environment, how would you work with someone to overcome this retirement malaise? I might talk to a person about you know, what they did and how they understand what they were bringing to the work that they did. Maybe they find that they were really good as an executive because they were able to mentor people. Maybe they were really good because they could take people under their wings and spot talent and help people to believe in themselves. Well, that's a skill that isn't employment dependent. That's something that is rewarding and requires a certain level of skill and talent. And they could do it in a lot of different settings. Maybe they'd like to do something like that. So helping people to imagine a future that it would be rewarding. Well, one final question, Tom, uh, regarding imagining one's future. What mm -hmm. do you think now? Yeah. If you could go back and say, what would my life be like if I hadn't lost my job? <laughs> Gives me chills. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon. <laughs>